Well, I want to wish you a happy Memorial Day weekend, and I hope that you have already had and that you will continue to have a, just a great time as you remember and celebrate the sacrifices that so many have made in order that we uh, today can enjoy the freedoms that, that we know. And, and I do want to say on behalf of our entire Southwinds family, uh, thank you to all of you who have served and uh, those of you who have families uh, where you have people who have served and made sacrifices, we're so very, very grateful. Well, we are wrapping up our series, Finding Financial Freedom, today, and uh, I want to leave you with two key passages of Scripture. And the first is one that we have looked at before, but I really want to encourage you to, again, learn it and to make it a part of your life, to actually live it out, because this is a passage that really sums up everything that we have been talking about. It's a passage that holds the key to you finding financial freedom in the ultimate sense. And the passage is Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10. Let me read it, and you follow along. It says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. You see, if you are a Christ follower, then the true objective of financial freedom is always to honor God with everything that he gives you. All these things that we have been talking about these weeks, learning how to live on a budget, learning how to get out of debt and staying out of debt, practicing the discipline of wise saving in our lives, all of these things are ultimately all about honoring God, you honoring God in your life. And I think we read a verse, a passage like this, and we get that, you know, generosity and giving and tithing, that's about honoring God. But I want you to be reminded, the Bible never says anywhere that we are to honor God with 10%, and then we can do whatever we want with the rest of our resources. See, God calls us to honor him with everything. And so what you should be asking yourself coming out of this series and what you should keep asking yourself out into the future as you live your life is this. How do I honor God with everything? How do I honor God with my stuff, with my house, with, with my car? How do I honor God with the purchases that I make? How, how do I honor God with the money that I save? How do I honor God with my investments, with my retirement planning? I mean, how do I honor God? Because that really is the issue. And you can put all these things we've talked about into practice, and you can do a lot more. You can live debt-free. You can save for the future. You can build a secure retirement. You can even practice tithing. But if in doing those things you are not seeking to honor God, then you are ultimately missing the point, because this is the reason God gives us resources. This is the reason we learn to manage our resources so that we can learn what it means to honor him. And I want, you to, I want you to take that word with you, and I want you to, to apply it to your lives because it is truth and it is power, and it's going to bring you joy as you really learn to do that in every aspect of your life. And the second passage that I want to leave you with that I want you to be thinking about is what we're going to focus on today, and it's 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. And you can go ahead and turn there now. I'm going to be reading that for you in a moment, but I want us to wrap this series up looking at this passage by by talking about an issue that every single one of us faces. And many of us are unaware of this issue. Many of us live in denial about this issue. Some of us struggle with this issue more than others do, but every one of us has at least some issue here. Every one of us struggles here, and it's the issue of greed. Part of honoring God 
with our resources involves us battling against greed. I'm calling today's message more better when enough is not because we live in a culture that just relentlessly pounds into us this mantra that more is better, more is better. And it's so easy for us to find ourselves, even when we don't intend to, believing that. But the Bible is telling us again and again and again that more isn't always better. The Bible tells us that when you chase more, more will never be enough. I want you to see today that until we get a handle on greed and its deceptiveness and its power in our lives, then we're never going to know true financial freedom. Let's, let's read Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Beginning in verse 6, Paul writes, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, Paul He's taking on our desire for more. He's taking on our our love of money. He's taking on greed. And he does this because greed is so destructive. Greed is destructive relationally. It is destructive emotionally. Most importantly, it is destructive spiritually. And as I said, you will never be financially free until you deal with this issue of greed in your life. I really want to just pound this home and say it again that every one of us These words are for us. Uh, It doesn't matter what our financial situation. I want to warn you right now, if you're finding yourself kind of checking this box, turning this off, thinking that what I'm going to talk about today applies to other people, not you, then these words are definitely for you. These words are for everyone. Do not find yourself thinking that because you don't have a lot, that greed cannot be an issue for you. See, wealthy people are not the only ones susceptible to greed. In fact, I'll just tell you from personal experience, some of the greediest people that I've ever met didn't have much. Anyone can be greedy. In fact, if you were to read this entire chapter, you would see that Paul is addressing people at all points of the economic spectrum. We've already read the first. He says, people who want to get rich, that's verse 9, they can have a problem with greed. But later on in verse 17, he says, those who are rich in this present world they can have a problem. In other words, you can be greedy and rich or you can be poor and greedy. Paul is just telling us, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you are, greed can be an issue for you. Now, the broader context of what Paul is is saying here in this, this letter is that he's writing his young friend Timothy, who he has left in Ephesus to pastor the church there and take care of it. And and Paul's advice across this letter primarily has to do with how Timothy should deal with false teachers. And one of the things that characterized these false teachers was they were people who thought that they could get rich from their teaching, from their ministry. 
And you can read some things about that in the verses that precede what we just read, verses 3 through 5. Uh, there were evidently some people in Ephesus who were kind of first century versions of televangelists, the kind of people who told other people as they taught God's word, you know, if you just give me your money, then God's going to bless you and he's going to make you rich. He's going to give you whatever you want. And it's kind of interesting to realize that that sort of teaching drew a crowd back then, just like today. I think it did because it's kind of a half-truth. You know, sometimes God does reward us financially. But we know as we study God's word, as we live life in God's kingdom, that he never promises to do that all the time because really that's never the point. The point is always in God's blessings that we should be more interested in him as the giver than in his gifts. And so Paul is just, he's fighting against these false teachers by showing Timothy, the right attitude that we should have towards our resources, toward our possessions. And I want to point out to you two things that he tells Timothy, two things that I'm going to draw out today. Here's the first one. You can write this down on your message notes. Paul says that we need to be people who are recognizing the trap of more. In other words, we need to be aware. We need to be alert. We need to be seeing what's really going on. Look again at verse 9. He says, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. So Paul says, chasing more or greed is a trap. And it is a trap that causes us to fall into temptation. It is a trap that leads us into many foolish and harmful desires. It is a trap, he says, that plunges us into ruin and destruction. The Bible tells us that greed is a trap in at least four ways that I want to point out to you today that I hope you'll be thinking about how it applies to your life. The first one is this. Greed is a trap because it warps our desires. Paul talks about these foolish and harmful desires that come from greed, and it works in a lot of ways. One way it works is when we get a little bit more money than we used to have then we find ourselves buying things that we didn't have before, right? And that kind of feels good. And have you ever noticed that soon after you buy those things that you never had before, they become things that you could never see yourself living without? What once was a luxury becomes a necessity, right? I told you last week, if you remember, how the average home in America 50 years ago was around 1,200 square feet. The average new home that was built last year, according to the records that we have, was almost 2,700 square feet. And I know as I look out across at this room that many of you are thinking right now, how could anybody live in a 1,200 square foot house? That would be horrible. That would be awful. And yet we, of course, know if we stop to think about it that our grandparents and our great-grandparents lived in a house like that, and actually they were pretty happy, right? But now we're so used to what we have, we can't imagine not having it. John Ortberg wrote in his book, When the Game is Over, It All Goes Back in the Box. He he wrote about how in 1970, just, uh, you know, not too long ago, not even a half century ago, he said not many Americans then thought that things like a second car or a second TV were necessities. You know, some of you can't imagine not having four or five televisions in your home, right? Um, In 1970, he said only 11% of people thought that air conditioning in their car was a necessity. I mean, you know, they obviously didn't live in Tracy, right? (laughs) Probably in 1970, a lot of them did. (laughs) 
Uh, in 2000, he said that number had risen to 65%. You know, it's a necessity of AC in your car. He, he went on to write that in a Gallup poll, the respondents on average said that 21% of Americans are rich. So they assumed about one out of five Americans around them were rich. But then they asked those same people, how many of you are rich? You know what their answer was, the number was? It was actually a half of 1%. 0.5% thought that they themselves were rich. And Orbrook sums it all up by saying this. Everybody thinks he needs one thing to make himself rich. More. More. Now, in our culture, advertising really does promote this warping of desires. You know, some of us remember when ads used to talk about products and how the product was useful, how that product was superior to an other product of its kind. And, you know, honestly, you don't see much of that anymore. Today's ads tend to take good things like love and friendship and belonging, and then they just tell you, you can have those things if you'll just buy their product, right? Have any of you ever noticed how, how a lot of, like, beer commercials, they don't really focus on people actually drinking beer, in fact, lots of times they just show people having fun. In fact, I'm thinking about one brand of beer has commercials, and these, these commercials are all about people who are impossibly young and impossibly fit and gorgeous, and they're climbing mountains, and they're riding bikes, <laughs> and they're jumping off stuff. And they're, they're just, you know, all because they drink this beer. And I'm just thinking, wow, you know, you, you know, that's what happens when you drink beer. You get in better shape. <laughs> really. And that's what they want you to think. You know, what they really want you to think is if you buy their product, it's going to make you happy. And it never does. And so we just kind of end up moving from one product to another, thinking that each new product will bring us happy. Do you see? It's a trap. It's a trap. Second way greed is a trap is it blinds us to the truth about ourselves. I mentioned that only a half a percent of Americans actually think that they are rich. This is clearly not true, especially when you widen your scope out to the world. All of us are rich in comparison to the rest of the world. But our blindness to our own situation can happen without us noticing. And part of the reason for this is there's really just no objective way to measure greed. This is hard to see when you're actually being greedy. Uh, Tim Keller pastors a church in New York City, and once he was speaking at a series of men's breakfasts, and the, it was over a period of time, and he was speaking on the seven deadly sins. And if you know that list, you know that greed is one of those sins. And his wife asked him if they were like advertising what was coming the next week, and he said, yes, they were. And she said, well, you wait. When you do the one on greed, it will be the lowest attended breakfast of them all. And it was. Why? Well, because everyone thinks greed is a problem, but no one thinks they are greedy. You know, I've been a pastor for over 30 years, and I've heard a lot of confession of a lot of sins. And to this day, maybe it will change at some point in the future, but to this day, no one has sat in my office, looked across that desk, and said to me, Pastor Mike, I need to tell you, I am greedy. <laughs> I've never heard anybody say that. No one thinks they are greedy. We, we know there are greedy people. In fact, you can think of some greedy people right now, can't you? But we don't think we're greedy. See, greed's a trap because it blinds us to the truth about ourselves. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. He says, watch out. 
Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus warns us to be on the watch against greed. You know, Jesus doesn't say, watch out for adultery. Because generally you know when you're committing adultery, right? (laughs) See, how do you know if you're being greedy? I mean... Nobody says, you know, it's okay to make 4% profit, but if you move it to five now, that, that's greedy. You can't do that. No, nobody says, you know, you can save. It's good to save. And saving to this point, that's a good thing. But then if you save $5 more, $10 more, now you're greedy. Jesus says we need to watch out. We need to be alert. Because there's not really an easy way to measure greed. And it makes it so much easier for us to deceive ourselves. We just don't feel like we're being greedy. In fact, there's still some of you, I mean, I'm well into this message. You still are thinking right now, this is not a message for me. I'm glad so-and-so's here to hear it because they need it. But you know, this doesn't really apply to me. This is not my problem. You know, if you're thinking this is not your problem, I just want to tell you it is your problem. You're in the trap. The trap is snapped on you. It's closed on you. And this is a problem. It's blinded you. Jesus goes on right after verse 15 in Luke 12 to tell a story. It's the parable of the rich fool. And it's just a parable that explains how we can deceive ourselves about how greedy we are. It's just a trap. The third thing that we see is greed is a trap because it promises security. It it never delivers. Ecclesiastes 5.12 says, The sleep of a laborer is sweet. But the abundance of a rich man permits them no sleep. Isn't that interesting? We, we, we think that if we only have enough money, then we'll be able to relax. Then we'll be able to enjoy life. But the truth is, the more stuff you have, the more worrying you do, right? You have more to lose. We think just a little bit more money, that will make us secure. Nothing Nothing's going to happen to us then, and that is just untrue enough to trap us. If you are looking to find security in your stuff, then you're never going to be secure. I mean, honestly, think about it. Even if you had all that you wanted, that would not guarantee that nothing bad would ever happen to you. So greed is a trap. Finally, greed is a trap because when you're greedy, more is never enough. See, greed is addictive. And we have some addicts all around us here today. A lot of us don't know. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. It's an itch that can never be scratched. It's a desire that can never be satisfied. Verse 9 says that those who want to get rich and This phrase, get rich, actually means live richly, and that really is all of us, right? Drive better, eat better, vacation better, dress better. I mean, more, bigger, better, upgrade this, upgrade that. Everybody who's chasing that, they're falling into a trap. And I want you to notice something about that verse. Paul doesn't say it might happen. Paul says it will happen. It's a promise. You chase more, you're gonna get trapped. I mean, think about it. If I want to live richly, and I, you know, honestly, if we got honest with ourselves, that would be all of us. If I want to advance my lifestyle, if I want to get more, eventually, sooner or later, I'm going to fall into the trap. The trap's going to snap shut. Everyone will. And some of us are in that trap right now. Everyone here with a credit card balance you cannot pay, you fell into that trap. Everyone here 
who has a mortgage payment that you can't pay, not because of job loss, loss of income, but because you made a bad decision, because you wanted more, you wanted a better house, you wanted a bigger house, you wanted to live richly, you fell into a trap. There are some of us here, you're trapped in leases for automobiles, and you hate the car now because you hate the lease that you're trapped in. You stepped into that trap because you were told for just a couple hundred more dollars a month, you know, you could drive an awesome car that would be so much cooler than your neighbor's. You wanted to live richly. We talked about this during our series, how we read about these people. They have millions of dollars and they go bankrupt. And all of us here, we judge them, don't we? Let's be honest. You judge those people, right? Come on, raise your hands. Be honest. It's not a good thing to lie in church. Um, <laughs> we judge people like that. You know what we do? We, we say, that would never happen to me. If I had all those millions of dollars, I would never go bankrupt. It's the trap. You're deceiving yourself. When you're greedy, more is never enough. And Paul is promising us what he says in verse 9 will happen if we do what he's talking about, chasing after more. Uh, years and years ago, I read a story, pretty famous story, that just illustrates how this desire for more is a trap. It's a a short story written by the famous Russian author, Leo Tolstoy, and the, the story is called How Much Land Does a Man Need? Story is about a Russian peasant farmer who is very proud of his simple lifestyle, and what he thinks is that he just needs, all he needs is some land. And so at the beginning of the story, he, he makes this statement. He says, if I only had plenty of land, I wouldn't fear the devil himself. In other words, if I just had this possession, I'm good. I have everything I need. So he manages uh, to buy a few acres from a local landowner, but he's become a possessive person. It leads to conflict with his neighbors, and so he sells, and he moves somewhere else where he can have more land, and he gets successful there, but he's renting land there, and he doesn't like to be dependent on someone else's land, and so he moves again, and when he moves again, he meets these nomads, and they have no use for farmland, and so they tell him, you give us a 1,000 rubles. You can spend a day walking around a parcel of land. And he, they say, you can mark your path with a spade that you take with you. And if you make it back to where you started at the end of the day, then you can get the land, all the land that you covered. He thinks that's a good deal. So he gets up really early in the morning, starts out. He's trying to get as much land as possible. But he keeps going farther and farther and farther because he keeps seeing more land that he wants. And he finally realizes getting late in the day, the sun is starting to drop. He better make his way back. He, he has to, you know, run. He starts running because he's not going to get back to the starting point. He's going to lose it all. And as the sun finally is dipping below the horizon, he makes it to where these nomads are waiting. And he collapses right there exhausted. And the nomads, they gather around to congratulate him. But Tolstoy writes, he doesn't hear them because he's dead. He's died. Greed has killed him. Here's what I want to ask today. Are you recognizing the trap of more in your life? Are you aware that this is a danger for everyone, including you, even if you don't think you have very much? Are you battling against greed in your life? And it's so important because you're never going to know the financial freedom that God, God's word talks to us about if you, you don't. 
Second thing that Paul tells us, we need to be people, he says, people who are avoiding the desire for more. We need to see what it is, and we need to battle against it and not give in to this desire for more. Going back to verses 6 through 8, Paul writes, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, he says, we will be content with that. What do greedy people think great gain is? Well, greedy people think great gain is more. Great gain is, is more. Paul says no. Paul says godliness plus contentment equals great gain. So I just want to ask you, I, I think it would be really helpful for you to write this question down in the first person. Uh, how do you measure great gain? Why don't you write that down? How do I measure great gain? How I, do I define that in my life? You should take that and you should think about that this coming week. And the reality is that most of us measure great gain in physical or material or, or tangible terms. We measure great gain in terms of more. Great gain is I have newer, better, bigger, higher definition smart TVs. Great gain is my 401k, it is so fat, I can live to 120. Great gain is a bigger house a cooler car, a gourmet kitchen, an exotic vacation. And Paul is just saying here, I want you to redefine great gain. Paul says great gain in this life is godliness. And that means you have surrendered your life to God and you are living the way that God wants you to live. That, that means you are becoming in your life more and more like Jesus Christ. And when this is happening, when you are a godly person and you combine that with contentment, Paul says that is truly great gain. And then he explains why this makes sense. You know, if, if great gain is just about stuff, think about it, then when we die and when we leave it all here, that means we had no great gain because we did not send anything on ahead. We did not do anything of real value besides just acquiring stuff. That's what verse 7 is showing us. It says we, we brought nothing into the world. And we're going to take nothing out. You see, the reason that great gain has more to do with your relationship with God and with your contentment with what you have is this. You're going to leave it all here anyway. And Paul is just saying, I want you to start redefining and start rethinking stuff. He, he challenges us in verse 8. Did you see it? He says, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. So, Southwinds, let me ask you, are we? Just be real honest. How many of you say, hey, if I have food and clothing, that's all I need? Let's get real honest with ourselves, shall we? How many of you have a problem with just having food and clothing, nothing else? I raised my hand first. Come on. Are we really content with just food and clothing? I don't just mean at church when you answer the question. I mean in real life. And uh, Paul just says, we should be that way. Can we be that way? I mean, in 21st century America? And the answer, of course, is yes. God would not tell us to do something that couldn't be done. But how do we do that? I mean, how do we get from where we are to where Paul's talking about? Well, the Bible gives us some wisdom on how we can avoid the desire for more, how we can actually be content uh, with what God gives us. Now, let me give you these three things. First of all, learn contentment from Jesus. We can avoid the desire for more when we 
learn to find our contentment in Jesus. Let me ask you a question. I want you to think about this, okay? Who is more content? The man with $12 million or the man with 12 children? And the answer is, correct answer is, the man with 12 children because he does not want any more. Amen? <laughs> See, so, so here's the deal. How do you get to the place where we don't want anymore? Let me give you let me some help with that. Hebrews 13, 5 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Why, why can we be content? The secret is in that word because. Because... Because God is with us. We can be secure in him. We can be content in him because he is going to take care of us. We don't have to compete with other people. We don't have to defeat other people. I mean, you know, the one who dies with the most toys wins. Do you realize how stupid that statement is? We don't have to look out for number one, take care of ourselves because God is taking care of us, and God is never going to leave us, and God cares for us, and that's enough. See, Paul tells us in Philippians 4.11 that he had learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. And if you've studied that book, maybe you know that Paul wrote those words from prison, from prison. Paul had learned that godliness plus contentment equals great gain. So he had developed this ability to be content no matter what circumstances were around him, and that was real wealth. When we look to Jesus as our security, then we can begin to actually truly use that word enough. We don't always have to worry about getting ahead. We don't always have to be striving. We can rest, and we can relax, and we can live with what God has given us. Second way that we can escape the trap of greed is to learn generosity from Jesus. See, once we find our contentment, once we find our security in Jesus, then we can become more generous ourselves. We can open our hands and open our arms. In fact, there's a very familiar statement that Jesus made. It's kind of an interesting thing. We don't have it in any of the Gospels. We only know about this statement because Paul tells us about it in the book of Acts. It's Acts 20, verse 35, and this is, what it's, this is what he says. The Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, here's the question I'm gonna ask you. Does Jesus know what he's talking about? Is it really more blessed? Is it really more happy to give? Is, is that really really true. And a lot of us will say in church that we believe that, but then when we go outside and we go into our worlds and we live our lives, we don't actually live like we believe it. See, one of the truths of life, and I hope you figure this out at some level, it opens up so much understanding of our world, but the truth of life is this. Everyone wants to be happy. Now, a lot of people have a really weird definition of happy. But everyone wants to be happy. Anybody ever know one of these people and you would say about them, they're only happy when they're unhappy. You know anybody like that? Well, it's still true about them because they think, because they're messed up, 
that happiness comes from being unhappy. I know it doesn't make sense, but it's still true. Everyone wants to be happy. And, and so what that means is anyone who believes that what Jesus said is true here, they're going to be a generous person. They're going to be a giving person. They're going to do what Jesus said because they want to be happy. So if you're not doing that, it means you don't think Jesus knew what he was talking about. You think Jesus was wrong. Now, I want you to, to think about this. One of the important truths in life that all of us need to learn is this. The only way that you will ever defeat in your life the desire to acquire, this desire for more, is by doing the opposite, by giving more. Generosity really is the only way to defeat materialism. Now, some of you, maybe you're a little skeptical. You'd say, well, I expect you to say something like that. You're a pastor. I mean, in fact, your goal in life is to try to get someone like me to give money to the church. You have an ulterior motive. Okay, you can say that, but I just have to ask you, it doesn't matter who I am. What about Jesus? Because I'm not the one who said it is more blessed to give than receive. Jesus said that. So I want to ask you again, is Jesus right? Is his statement true? You know, I was thinking about that. I was thinking somebody ought to put that to the test. Somebody ought to do some research. Somebody ought to try to see, could you actually empirically verify that statement? Turns out someone actually has. 2014, a, a book called The Paradox of Generosity came out. It was written by a sociologist at Notre Dame named Christian Smith. And he's done a number of very important books in a number of different areas. And he took uh, time to do some definitive research looking at the impact of generosity on the lives of real people. And so they, they surveyed over 2,000 people. It was a nationally representative survey. They did these many in-depth interviews with a lot of these people. They were using the very best tools of social science, and they were trying to find out what does generosity do for people? Is it actually better to get, or is it actually better to give? How does giving or, or not giving impact our lives? Well, here's the summary. This is what what Christian Smith writes. He says, giving is paradoxical. Those who give receive back in turn. By spending ourselves for others' well-being, we enhance our own standing. In letting go of some of what we own, we better secure our own lives. By giving ourselves away, we move toward flourishing. This is not only a philosophical or religious teaching, it is a sociological fact. The generosity paradox can also be stated in the negative. By grasping onto what we currently have, we lose out on better goods we might have gained. In holding onto what we possess, we diminish its long-term value to us. By always protecting ourselves against future uncertainties and misfortunes, we are affected in ways that make us more anxious about uncertainties and vulnerable to future misfortunes. In short, by failing to care for others, we do not properly take care of ourselves. Now, throughout this book, there is a contrast that is based on empirical 
research that, that demonstrates there's these two different ways of living, living with a generous heart. In other words, people, people who regularly and, and they freely give away a significant portion of their resources, their time and their money. They give those things away to help others. And it's compared and contrasted to that other way of living, people who have an ungenerous heart. And, and they're looking at real people who, who do this and real people who don't do this. People who give regularly, people who don't give regularly. And it turns out, it turns out that in every dimension studied, in, in happiness, in physical health, in having a purpose for living, in avoiding depression, in personal growth, it turns out that research shows that generous people are enriched in every way and ungenerous people are diminished in every way. It turns out Jesus was right. Go figure. It turns out that a lack of generosity actually costs more than generosity. Now, some of us have been learning that in our lives in many different ways. One example that kind of came to my mind this week has has been in our next-gen spiritual initiative. If you've been around Southwinds for very long, you probably know that we are almost one year into our three-year season, the next-gen spiritual initiative. And, 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 you know, I think because of the generosity of so many of you, there's a lot of happiness that's already being unleashed. And I think that's just going to ripple out and it's going to increase and it's going to overflow into the future as we begin to see what God is going to do. I just want to let you know Today, that uh, to date, to this point in time, uh, you as a church family have given over $963,000. We're almost to a million dollars, and we're just getting excited about how uh, groundbreaking is going to happen this summer. We're going to be telling you more about this. You know, come back next week. We're going to have some news we want to share with you there. You know, and if you were able to stand up and talk to us and share your story, so many of you could talk about how. You've been a generous person in this way or that, and God has just blessed you and made you happy. You know it's true. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not generous, then you don't believe me. You think it's kind of a trick. You think it's manipulation or something like that. But the truth is, I just want to tell you, your problem is not with me. It's not with this church. It's with Jesus because Jesus is the one who said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And you just have to learn it. And the only way you learn it is by trusting Jesus and then living the way that he lived, doing what he said. That's when you find out that he's right. And if you won't learn it, then greed is going to trap you. Here's the final way that I want to share with you that we can escape the trap of greed. And it's simply this. You we need to put our hope where it belongs, and that is in Jesus. I want to read you verses 17 through 19 toward the end of Paul's letter to Timothy. This is what he writes. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. You see, always thinking that more is better means I am putting my hope in wealth. 
And Paul just reminds us, wealth is so uncertain. Paul says, you need to put your hope in God. He, he reminds us that God is not a God who wants to take everything away from us. He tells us here, did you notice that he says, God richly provides us with everything we need for our enjoyment. Do you see that? God cares about your enjoyment. God is not opposed to us experiencing some of the good things in this world. Paul says, you know, instead of being concerned about getting more, you need to give more. He says, do good. Be rich in good deeds. Be generous and willing to share. And he tells us again, generosity actually is the only way you can truly prepare for the future because he says, when you do that, when you're generous, you are laying up treasure. And notice this, it's for yourself. You're doing something good for yourself. He says, you're laying up treasure for yourself. It is treasure that will last into eternity. Paul says, it is generosity that allows us to take hold of the life that is truly life. Wealth is uncertain. Stuff is uncertain. We eventually lose all our stuff, either before we die or after. The last line of Tolstoy's story says it really well. It says, the man's servant picked up the spade, that spade with which he was marking out all the territory he was going to have. The man's servant picked up the spade and dug a grave long enough for him to lie in and buried him in it. Six feet from his head to his heels was all he needed. So he had all this land, he had all this stuff, and People were patting him on the back and complimenting him because he had earned so much. And then he died and he lost it all. We need to be people who are putting our hope where it belongs. Paul says, don't forget, you brought nothing into this world. You can't take anything out. But there is one thing, actually. One thing you can take with you, one thing that cannot be taken away, and that is the love of Christ, the forgiveness of our sins, eternal life that we have through trusting Jesus, God's only son who died on the cross so that we might be forgiven, so that we might set, be set free. You see, it's not more, it's enough. And Jesus, his death, his life for us, that is enough. And when you get to the place where you get that and you begin to live that, well, I'm just telling you, that is where true freedom of all kinds, financial, any other kind, that's where that happens. Putting our hope in Jesus is how we take hold of the life that is truly life. Do you know that life? Are you experiencing that life? I want to ask you to bow your heads. We're going to pray and ask God to apply and teach in every way, what we need to know. Father God, we give you thanks again for life. Lord, we give you, you we thanks for everything that is good in our life. You tell us in your word, Father, that uh, you are the giver of all good gifts, and we recognize this today. Lord, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we think we earned it or we got it on our own strength or cleverness, but Lord, the truth is whatever we have that is good came from you. You've allowed us to have it out of your grace, and so we thank you for that.
Lord, help us to see that freedom and joy and happiness is never found in more. It's only found in you. Lord, help us to see that you, you are enough. You alone satisfy. You alone bring joy. We thank you for your love and we thank you for your your grace and your mercy and your patience. Lord, all of your goodness towards us. And we ask all these things now in the name of Jesus, your son, our Lord, our savior. And all God's people together said, amen. Amen.